Hey, it's Bobby Bones. You know, when you build with Morton Buildings, you build something that lasts. If you need a garage, insulated workshop, horse barn, farm storage building, cabin, office, warehouse, or anything in between, Morton can create a building that's perfect for you, that's attractive, that's easy to maintain, that's dependable enough to stand the test of time. Don't delay. Construction schedules are filling up fast. So now is the time to start planning your building project with Morton Buildings. Find out more right now at mortonbuildings.com. Look deeper. Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast. Providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. I recently joined as a member, and you can too. Apply today and become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at p-o-d-g-o dot c-o. And if you go apply, be sure to mention Great Unsolved Podcast and How Did You Hear About Podgo. Jared Edadero went on a hike with his sister and a group of Christian singles that knew his father. Being only three years old, he ran ahead of the group, and that was the last time he was ever seen alive. Missing 411 is not just for those who are still missing. Some cases have a body found, and this is one of those cases. Welcome to or welcome back to the Great Unsolved podcast. My name is Alexis. This week we are going with the same kind of structure as we did last week where I am doing two cases that I have previously done in another podcast, but that podcast is no longer out and I still want these cases to be able to reach all of you. So this week we are going into the case of Jared Adadero and the case of Dr. Maurice Dometz. Both of them went missing without a trace, and they're just very puzzling stories. You'll see why. Be sure to check out all of our links in the description box below, and let's just jump into these cases. There are a lot of oddities in this case, just as in every other missing 411, but this one also seems to have a massive cover-up in play. About a year and a half before his disappearance, Jared's father had purchased a resort in the Colorado wilderness because he wanted to get to be a little more outdoorsy. They ended up moving into the little apartment that was in the back of the convenience store, which their resort owned, because Alan, Jared's father, really ended up loving the area. On October 2nd, 1999, Alan had a Christian singles group staying at the resort. They were helping him winterize the resort since it was a lot of work to do. On this day, 11 or 13, there are differing reports of the singles in this group, decided they wanted to go to the fish hatchery, which was only about a mile and a half or so up the road. One of the ladies who was going on this little outing was someone that Jared's six-year-old sister, Jocelyn, loved to hang out with. This caused her to ask her father if she could tag along with the group. 
Alan had met the people in this group before and trusted them, so he said, why not? What he wasn't expecting was for his three-year-old son to hear this and then ask if he could go. Alan, not wanting to give the group more than they could handle, originally said Jared could not go. However, after Jared begged and begged to go, Alan allowed him to do so. The group ended up going off in multiple cars to the fish hatchery. It didn't turn out to be as exciting as they had thought, so they weren't there long. Without telling Alan, the group took the children and drove another 15 miles away from the resort to a trailhead called Big South Trail. This was a seven-mile trail through the Colorado wilderness. The forest was very dense, so it seemed logical enough that the children would have no choice but to stay on the trail. When they started off on this trail, they split into two groups. One was slower and one was faster. The children obviously stayed with the slower group as their legs probably wouldn't carry them very quickly. Jared was very talkative and outgoing that day, so when he saw two fishermen passing up the group, he went to talk with them and just ended up walking with them. He began asking lots of questions, such as, are there bears around here? Which later prompted people to ask if maybe Jared had seen some wild animals, and this is why he asked the question. The fishermen must have noticed he was with the two groups surrounding them, so they felt no need to make him go back to the slow group. However, these fishermen were walking quite quickly, and eventually passed up the fast group as well. Instead of stopping, Jared continued to walk alongside them. When they got to a fork in the trail, the fishermen chose to go one way, and Jared went off the other way. The fishermen would be highly criticized for this when it was found out Jared was missing, but they stated that the group was only 50 to 80 feet behind them, so they figured the group must have seen Jared and would continue to follow him. However, this was the last time Jared was seen alive. Some would later report that a little while after this, they heard a scream. Some stated that it was a playful scream like that of a child when you tag them. Others said it sounded like a terrified scream. And yet others deny this even ever happened. After walking for a little longer, some of the group began to realize that no one had seen Jared in a while, and they began to call for him and look for him. This proved to do them no good, so two women in the group drove back to the resort to get Alan. When these two women burst into the room with the resort manager, they stated, we have a problem with Jared. Alan started to think about scrapes and broken bones or a bad tantrum, but these women just kept telling him, no, that's not what happened. When he finally asked, well, what happened? They then said something that would be very controversial throughout this entire case and even today. They said, he's okay, we just can't find him. Alan has said that this wording struck him as very odd. How could they know Jared was okay if they couldn't find him? To me, it kind of just sounds like they were trying to bring the situation down a bit. You know when you were younger and you would like accidentally hit a sibling or a cousin or someone too hard and an adult would be like, what happened? And you'd be like, oh, they're fine. It's nothing. When obviously they weren't fine, just to bring down the situation a little bit. 
I kind of see this as that same type of situation and that same type of idea to bring the situation down and not worry Alan more than he already was. Sure, it was um, back in, on October 2nd, 1999. Uh, my son was on a hike with some, some friends and he vanished on the hike. And it, it was a difficult time. We were desperate trying to find out what, what could have happened to him. Uh, there was a big search in the works. And throughout the search, the search lasted five days. And at the time, my, my son was never found. When, when, when Jared disappeared, it was a frustrating week. It was a week where a lot of, a lot of things happened, a lot of just more questions than answers. And when you're in that type of situation, you become desperate. You become a person looking for help in any, any place you can. And uh, it was nice because I drove down the mountain Saturday a week after Jared disappeared. And I didn't know what to expect when I got home. I was going back to a home where my son was gone. And the house wasn't quite as loud as it used to be. And it was painful. I remember walking into the closet for the first time and seeing his dirty clothes there, and looking at the bathtub and seeing his toys sitting right there and not knowing if I would ever see my son ever again. Of course, Alan got in the car immediately and they went back to Big South Trail. At the same time, unbeknownst to Alan, the resort manager was calling search and rescue to help in finding Jared, which would prove very helpful to this case. As they are driving, it's the first time Alan hears that this group didn't just go to the fish hatchery, that they went on a hike over 15 miles away as well, and that is where Jared got lost. Alan runs onto the trail and starts calling Jared's name, hoping he was just hiding somewhere, thinking they were playing a game. But after a mile, Jared doesn't come out. At this point, Alan really looks around, and comes to the conclusion that they need police and search and rescue because this is not what he thought at all. To his relief, when he gets back to the trailhead, search and rescue is already arriving. They begin to search all over that night but find no sign of Jared and begin to think he found somewhere to go nap. After all, he was only three, he had been hiking all day, he was probably really tired. Their new plan is that they will be out on the trails at dawn, because that is when Jared normally wakes up, and he may come out looking for someone then. After nothing is found the next morning, a helicopter is called in, which eventually has to go back to refuel, and upon its second arrival, it crashes. Alan begins getting calls asking if Jared was found because people saw the helicopter, and now they're seeing ambulances headed that way. But it is not until Jared goes to another resort and asks, like, hey, what happened, that he learns the helicopter crashed. So already, law enforcement is not keeping him in the loop, and you'll see that as a trend throughout this case. This is where things with law enforcement really start to get sketchy and very aggravating. They start to block off the trail and do not allow anyone on the trail except those who work for them. They wouldn't even let family help search the trail. Could you imagine having your son missing 
and just having to sit there and you couldn't even help search, that would be awful. Alan's family even flew in from California and wanted to go help, so they rode down to the trail. As Alan is back at the resort that the police were using for basically a base camp, he hears an officer on the radio state that, quote, we are going to have to arrest the Adaderos if they don't stop causing problems, end quote. Well, come to find out, their causing problems was just them trying to help search on the trails. At this time, the police weren't only refusing help from Jared's family, they were also refusing help from everyone. The National Guard had volunteered, trained dog groups had volunteered, and plenty more search and rescue groups had volunteered, but the police turned them all away. At one point, they even told Alan that they could not afford to pay these groups. And being the nice person Alan is, he understood that. But he then had to call the groups back and tell them why they weren't going to use their services. When he told them that the police couldn't pay them, they kind of laughed back at him, saying, we never accept payment for these kind of things, and the police know that. Around the same time, a military tracker happened to be in the area. If you don't know what a military tracker does... We are in the same boat because I have no idea either. But I did research it a tiny bit, and it seems that these individuals are heavily trained to observe, identify, interpret, and follow physical evidence left behind by whoever or whatever they are tracking. Anyways, this military tracker is in the area, so he decides to volunteer his expertise because why wouldn't you want that expertise when looking for a missing child? After searching for a long time, he unknowingly goes back to Alan's resort and purchases food. While he is checking out, he is talking to the cashier, and he's saying, you know, I'm so tired from searching for this boy for so long, and the cashier happens to be Alan. When the military tracker finds this out, he's like, oh my goodness, I need to talk with you. Can we go sit down? I need to talk with you. So they go and sit down. And as soon as they sit down, this military tracker starts to draw a map. This map also has a big X on it. When he starts explaining to Alan, Alan is very excited about this information the military tracker states that I've tracked your son multiple times and it's always gone to here, which is the X on the map. He says I can't get to there, which I'm assuming is due to the terrain, but we will get into that more later. Anyways, he says I can't get to there, but I'm pretty certain that's where your son is. So like if you want to get law enforcement on it or something, please do. So right after the military tracker leaves, Alan gets on the phone with law enforcement and tells them what he just heard and discovered from this man. Law enforcement is refusing to do another search there because they said the helicopter already searched there and they found nothing. I don't know about you, but I would probably search again if someone who is this highly trained to track someone told me that's where you're going to find the missing kid. I would definitely go back and search no matter how many times I had searched it before. 
Later into these searches, Alan discovers a report from a park ranger. This ranger stated that he had seen Jared on that trail earlier in the day. He said he saw this boy with an older man, and the boy kept tugging away from the man and trying to run towards the ranger. However, the ranger just thought that it was a little kid being fussy and nothing more because the old man did not seem anxious at all. He was calm and collected the entire time. However, the ranger later saw Jared on the news and said he knew that was the child he had seen earlier. This comes into play in a big way also because police still have not interviewed this man. They told Alan that they had interviewed him, but the ranger remains to this day saying, no, they've never interviewed me. Like, they totally should because I obviously saw him. I don't know why they're not interviewing me. And it's just a whole thing now. It seems police don't want the truth in this case. By now, you can see that the sheriff's office... You will fail. So what? Everybody does. But your gym, your watch, your yoga pants, they pretend you won't. So when you miss a day, eat the pancakes. Give up on a workout? You failed? Seriously, what the hell? We're body. We've been a part of that too. But not anymore. At body, we're rejecting perfection and embracing reality. Not in a Pizza Monday kind of way, in a loving your whole life kind of way. In a, this workout is fun and it's okay if I take a week off kind of way. In an, I'm eating healthy and it's okay if I indulge kind of way. In a, I like myself no matter what kind of way. Yeah, you will fail. We all will. But we're not going to let that be the end. You see that? We're already making progress. So let's keep going. We are body. Start your free trial at body.com. That's B-O-D-I dot com. Is not great at what they're doing, but it gets even worse. So like the head sheriff, so like the actual sheriff, I think that's what they call it, didn't interview for a show or the news or something. But just as they were finishing up filming, the sheriff thought all of the cameras were off and he went up to someone and said, quote, are you as tired of this case as I am? And laughed. This is not something any professional does or should do, especially in the case of a missing child. This was only three and a half weeks into the investigation. He was talking about it like this had been like 20 years of his life. Like, oh, I'm so tired of this case. First of all, that's your job. Secondly, it's been three weeks. Like, there would still be a chance of finding this kid. How can you say something like that? Before we get into two of the major pieces of this investigation, I want to tell you all about two more weird pieces in this case. One is that police were using Alan's shorts for a scent for search dogs instead of Jared's. How police made that mistake is beyond me. A three-year-old shorts and a grown man's shorts do not look similar in any way. Secondly, Alan has stated that at one point he got a phone call from someone who couldn't reveal their identity, but said they were working with the sheriff's office. This man told Alan that the police were not telling him everything and that one day this would come out and he would help Alan. But for now, that's all he could say. 
Eventually, the police seemed to be getting better. They accepted to let a local search and rescue who knew the area come and look for Jared. However, the tables would turn. The night before they were scheduled to search, law enforcement called this team and said that if they showed up tomorrow, they would all be arrested. Thankfully, this group worked around the system by going without gear and in their plain clothes so that the police would let them help search without knowing they were part of the team. It seems very odd to me that search and rescue people had to pretend to be civilians just to be able to search. That seems quite backwards. But right around the same time, a congressman came to help with some searches. One day, he talked to Alan and stated that he had gotten a call at his work office saying that if he knew what was good for him, he would not show up to the search that day. So this case obviously had some kind of cover-up. If someone's threatening a congressman, it has to be a big thing. Upon finding nothing in these searches, police started to give Alan theories on what happened to Jared. But the main one that stuck with it was that Jared probably drowned, and because of the water being so cold, he wouldn't resurface for four years. Four years is a very specific and weird timeline for that. After researching a lot of water deaths for my book, I can tell you that this is not a realistic timeline at all. Yeah, the water may have been cold, but cycles happen every year. That's how seasons work, that's how weather works, it doesn't happen every four years. So, if anything, because the water was cold, Jared would surface within the next year. In this time, Jared's father, Alan, became an advocate for different things that would help parents not lose their children. On October 2nd, 1999, my son went on a hike up in the Colorado mountains, and he walked off and he was lost. It was a situation to where no parent ever expects to be or see a day where it would be the last day they saw their child. A lot goes through your mind. You, you hope that you see him, you hope that everybody is doing the right things to find your child. And you never understand what can happen. When you look back, there are so many different things that we could have done or so many different things that, that have changed since that day that could possibly help. I was sitting at home one day and the commercial with the child locator came on. I see this lady looking for her lost child, and she finds him. And I see in the commercial the joy this lady experienced by being reunited with her child. It's something I never experienced. But after watching the commercial, I was excited, and I, and I had a lot of energy because I realized, my goodness, there's something out there that people can use. There's something out there that they can take advantage of them so that they do not have to live the same horror story I lived through. I think Whistle Away Crime has the opportunity to prevent families from going through what I've gone through. Three and a half years ago, a group of adults took my son on a hike up in the mountains, and they lost him, and I haven't seen my son since then. And when I think about Whistle Away Crime, I wish it were around back then, because I really honestly believe in my heart that Whistle Away Crime could have saved my son if there were 
we're a process out there where kids are being educated about blowing a whistle if they, were, if they needed help. I know my son would have been doing that, and I think my son would be, be sitting here right now. And whistle away crime, I look at as an opportunity for other people to be saved and not have to go through the pain I went through. Well, let's skip back to four years after Jared went missing. Two hikers were climbing 500 feet vertically, about two miles away from the head of the trail. When I say vertically, I'm talking about almost exactly straight up. It was a steep mountain, and that's where these hikers were climbing. When they got to about 500 feet vertically, they found children's clothing. Immediately, the police were called because... That has to be terrifying to be somewhere where not a lot of people go and you find child's clothing. That would definitely freak me out. Anyways, the police were able to get a hold of Alan and identify these clothes as Jared's clothing. These clothes did not look like they had been out in the wilderness for four years or even like a week. The wind and rain apparently did nothing to these clothes. They looked clean and still put together. A lot of people think that a really weird part of this is that the pants were found inside out, but honestly, when I take off jeans or something, I pull from the waist down, so my pants turn inside out, and I think it's a semi-common way for people to take off their pants. So maybe that is how Jared did that, and that would explain the inside-out pants. What I can't explain away is how his white shoes looked untouched. There was no mud, no dirt, no scrapes, which definitely would have happened if he was drug up the mountain or if he walked up the mountain. His shirt was also fully intact. There were no animal bites. And it just didn't seem like they had been out there for that long. These clothes were examined, and it was found that there was absolutely no blood or decomposition liquids on the clothing and that there were, in fact, no animal bites. So that counts out animal attack. And to count that out even more, Alan talked to a man who was attacked by a mountain lion not that far from where Jared went missing, and that man stated there's no way Jared would have been attacked without blood on that clothing. So if an animal didn't bring his clothes up or him up there, then how did they get there? There was no way a three-year-old was making that climb on his own. Upon further examination, strange hairs were also found on the collar of Jared's shirt, but Alan was unable to see the results of these tests, despite being able to see the rest of the stuff in the case. Police would just not let him see the results of this test. He was only told that it was not human hair, and not mountain lion hair, which doesn't make sense how they could discern that, but it seems that law enforcement had to have known what kind of hair it was if they could make these distinctions. Not long after the clothing was found, people started to question why no bones were found at this area, and an important statement that was said on national television was, why wasn't a tooth even found? Well, If you're following along with the story at this point, then you probably guessed what happened next. A tooth and a bone was found. A week after the clothing was found, part of a cranium and a tooth was found in the exact same area. Apparently, searchers don't notice bones 
even though that is a major find in this case. The tooth was even sitting perfectly on top of a pile of pine needles, and it looked like it could have only been placed there. The finding of these things related back to something I talked about a little while ago. You remember that military tracker that got turned away because the helicopters had already searched that area and found nothing? Well, all this evidence was found within 30 feet of where the military trackers said Jared would be found. So we can only wonder if police had gone and looked and followed up that tip, would Jared still be alive today? The bone and the tooth were not even confirmed to be Jared's until two years after finding them, and it was the third DNA test. The first DNA test done by local law enforcement was an 86% match to Jared, but Alan wanted another test, so he sent the skull to someone in Ohio. Conveniently, the tooth was basically destroyed by local law enforcement. But the Ohio test shown that DNA tests were inconclusive, so local law enforcement could not have given an 86% match. Also, local law enforcement failed to tell Alan that there was two people's DNA on the tooth as well. When I first heard that there was two people's DNA on the tooth, I was very alarmed because that shows tampering with evidence or just neglect for the crime scene. But in an interview Alan did himself, he said that he himself was on the mountain the day that these bones were found. He got to the top of the mountain after these bones were found, but when he got there, he asked investigators if he could hold the tooth, and they agreed to let him. So now I'm kind of thinking that maybe the other DNA on the tooth was Alan's. However, if it wasn't, then that could have still been a huge piece in the case, and they should have never let Alan hold the tooth either, because that is still contaminating crime scene evidence. After receiving news that this was, in fact, Jared's bones, the scratches on the top of the skull had to be looked at next. A woman messaged Alan, stating she was a doctor and she knew exactly what these scratches were from. They were from a riverbed. Basically, someone being dragged along a riverbed and the rocks hitting the skull, that kind of thing. Alan could believe that, but then he questioned how the skull could have gotten up so high if Jared had been in a riverbed. Well, the doctor stated that there was probably a flash flood, and that's when Alan stopped buying this whole story. What kind of flash flood goes 500 feet vertically and doesn't completely destroy everything around it? That obviously did not happen in this case, and would really never happen because that would be a catastrophic flash flood. However, when he mentioned this to the lady, she never responded again. So there's a lot of theories in this case, obviously, but I want to kind of connect a few dots. So first, law enforcement stops letting others work on the searches, then they start refusing help from even qualified professionals who search this area. Next, they come up with 
an explanation to how Jared died and why they weren't able to find anything, saying he would appear four years later. Then, almost exactly four years later, clothing is found somewhere Jared could not have gotten to on his own. Then, when people start to question why no bones or teeth were found, one bone and one tooth miraculously appear in the place they had already combed over. Then, the tooth has multiple DNAs on it and is accidentally destroyed. Then, someone emails Alan to explain away the scratches, but when he comes back with logic, they never respond. So, I'm not saying it's a police cover-up, but I'm not saying it's not a police cover-up, because it sure sounds like the police are trying to cover something up, at least. There are theories that relate to UFOs and Jared being abducted for a few years, then dropped there years later, which could explain why the clothes look so new. There are theories that the police found evidence right away and just hid it to bring it back out four years later. And there are also theories that go with the ranger's accounts. But my question is, if Jared was with an old man, then how did the old man get up the mountain? I don't know what to believe, and there are endless theories to this. What I really want to know is what was the hair on his clothing? If it wasn't human and there was no sign of an animal attack, that just leaves our minds to wander into crazy conspiracies of what it could be. So it wasn't an animal attack because there's no way there would be no blood and no evidence of one if one had happened. That means it had to be something sort of human- intervention-y because Jared wasn't able to climb that mountain on his own. But then again, the hair wasn't human. This case just frustrates me to no end, and the horrible police work just makes me so angry, and I get so confused because the evidence points multiple ways, but hopefully that man who called Alan was right that all the information would come out one day because I cannot wait to find out what really happened. So, if you have some free time, go raise awareness about this case, and let's get the law enforcement to tell us the whole truth. NBA playoffs are on their way. But before they begin, it's the NBA play-in tournament. Winner advances, the loser goes home. Four teams vying for the last two spots in each conference. Curry, Some teams will get in. Do or die. Others, they're coming up short. Forget about X's and O's. Who wants it more? It's now or never. The playoffs are calling. But first, you got to win to get in. The NBA play-in tournament begins April 11th on ESPN and TNT. ¿No se merece tu familia lo mejor? Entonces, ¿por qué no los mejores huevos? Ahora, Egglands Best están disponibles en deliciosas opciones. Huevos clásicos de gallina libre de jaula y orgánicos de Egglands, que ofrecen un sabor más delicioso y fresco de granja, que le encantará a tu familia. En comparación con los huevos ordinarios, Egglands Best contiene la mejor nutrición como 6 veces más vitamina D, 10 veces más vitamina E y el doble de omega 3 y B12. Solo Egglands Best. Mejor sabor, mejor nutrición, mejores huevos. Visita egglandsbest.com para más información. Today, we are going to go over the case of Dr. Maurice Dametz, who on April 29th of 1981 
vanished from a national forest, but no remains have ever been found. Let's jump into his story. Dr. Maurice Dometz had gotten his degree in theology from the University of Denver after he became a pastor at a local church and then moved on to being a dean of a college that was also around the area. All of this was in Colorado still. When he went missing, he was still a traveling pastor around the area, and he was loved by many people. It is said that he was a little more on the extreme side of religion, as he had very fire and brimstone religious views and writings. When looking online, his age was greatly disputed. Some places said he was born in 1896, other places said 1906, and the general consensus was that he was in his 80s. But on the missing person site for Colorado, it shows his age as 75. Either way, Maurice was not a healthy man at the time of his disappearance. Just as most other elderly people, Maurice had bad arthritis and he had a blood disorder. Due to these disabilities, he couldn't really go places easily on his own. Luckily, Maurice had a good friend who doubled as a rock hunting partner named David McSherry. David would assist Maurice in climbing to the spots where he could then hunt for topaz. Generally, during these outings, Maurice and David would split up once David got Maurice all settled. This way, they could cover more ground without it taking double the time. They had planned this day to hunt for topaz because there was a point in the Pike National Forest aptly named Topaz Point. They hoped that this point would prove true to its name and they would hit the jackpot. The area they were going was also very close to another place called Devil's Head, which was also located in the National Forest. Native folklore has often stated this place was surrounded by evil spirits. To add to the weirdness of this area, other disappearances have happened around the same location as well. After assisting Maurice to his spot, David made sure that he had all of his tools and everything he needed for the day. Once the doctor was all set, David went off to find his own spot to hunt for topaz. Now, he didn't just leave him all day, he would check in about every 15 minutes to make sure Maurice was doing well and nothing had changed. The day went well and both individuals were very happily rock hunting and everything seemed serene and beautiful around them. Around 3 p.m., David walked the short 50 yards over to Maurice to see how he was doing. Although David had switched locations throughout the time they were there, Maurice had stayed in one spot due to being unable to walk this terrain alone. When David got there, they struck up a little conversation and decided they would probably be heading home fairly soon. After deciding this, David went back to his most recent area to start cleaning up his tools. This next time frame is something I've found a lot of different answers for. Some places say it was only 5 minutes later, some places say 10, and other places say 15. But it never goes above 15 minutes. So, no more than 15 minutes later, David was making his way back towards Maurice's spot in the forest. When he approached the area, he was taken aback because Maurice was no longer there. 
and neither were his tools. Although Maurice wouldn't have been able to make it back up the hill to the car, David stayed optimistic and walked that way. Just as he thought, Maurice was not in or anywhere near the car. Hoping that Maurice was somewhere close, David got in the car and decided to begin honking the horn. I think his idea here was just to see if maybe Maurice got lost somehow and started to come towards the noise, or maybe even just called out to David. Racking his mind, David decided to go back to the site Maurice had been digging at. It couldn't hurt to check once more. When he arrived, there was still no sign of Maurice, but David did know that it didn't look as if there was any struggle where Maurice had been. The dirt wasn't messed up except for where Maurice had been digging, and there was also no blood visible. Still believing that Maurice couldn't go far, David spent a long time walking around and calling for him, but found absolutely nothing. Eventually, he flagged down a motorist on Rampart Range Road and told him what was going on. By this time, it was around 11 p.m. at night, and the Douglas County Sheriff, along with search and rescue, had now been dispatched. After five days of a grueling search throughout the National Forest, they turned up absolutely nothing. And I mean nothing. No piece of clothing, none of the missing tools, no blood, not even a sign Maurice had ever been there. When Maurice Dametz went missing, he was described as 5 foot 9, 150 pounds with blue eyes and gray hair. On that day, he was wearing a white baseball cap, a maroon plaid flannel shirt, brown ankle boots, and blue overalls. If you have any information on him or his disappearance, please call 303-660-7505. On July 18th of 1981, Maurice's wife wrote to the Colorado governor asking for further assistance in finding Maurice. She also stated that he may be met foul play and had been carried out of the area, but she still asked for another extensive search. After nine years of no sign of Maurice, he was declared dead. Now, this is all the information I have for this case. I am just unable to find a more detailed version of events anywhere online. This is just a case that does not have a lot of information, but the theories make it still one of the most puzzling out there. So the first theory I was able to find was that Maurice got kidnapped. This is an idea that even his wife has mulled over because she stated that Maurice may have been carried out of the area that he was in. The main question is why would someone want to kidnap an old man? Having to carry a full-grown man through this rugged terrain and to at least a somewhat hidden car would be very difficult. The only reason someone would seemingly kidnap an old man would be to eventually kill them. So why not just kill them at the spot you found them? Well, the killer could have known that Maurice was with someone else and knew he would be back to check on him soon. This would suggest that the killer had been watching them much of their day. This seems to line up with the rituals of a serial killer. A serial killer would be vigilant enough to spend hours watching their victim so that they did not get caught. 
A serial killer might also have their rituals to do before, during, or after the kill, so killing Maurice where they found him would not have been an option. They also could have just known killing him right in that area would leave far too much evidence and be far too risky. The next theory I found is that of an animal attack. This has come up as a theory in both previous cases and will continue to come up through the rest of these cases as well. It is just very easy to go with when people go missing in the forested area. It makes sense. However, just as in the past two cases, it does not match up with the evidence, or better yet, lack of evidence, found here. I will say it time after time that animal attacks make noise. Whether it be from the animal, the person, or both, there is absolutely noise in an animal attack. Also, I've said it previously, and I'll say it again, animals do not clean up after themselves. I have two cats and a rabbit, and when they are done eating, it looks like a tornado went through and they couldn't care less. So I'm sure a wild animal with a human body is even more messy. There was no blood found at the scene, and there was no sign of a struggle in the dirt. On top of that, I would assume they looked for animal footprints and found nothing, because that probably would have been a big thing in reports if they had found something. The last piece of evidence that points against this theory is that all of Maurice's tools were gone, and obviously the animal would not have taken those because they're not worried about those. Another popular theory is that Maurice just wandered off on his own. However, we've talked about his arthritis and his inability to walk through this terrain. He could have gotten a few yards away at most. I mean, David was there to help Maurice get around, so him going off on his own didn't make any sense and probably wasn't possible. People have said that maybe he wandered and got stuck in some rough terrain, but like I said, he wouldn't have been able to get very far, so searches probably would have found him. And other people ask about suicide. And I've thought through this, and just being a deeply, somewhat extreme religious man he was, I doubt he would be okay with committing suicide. Many deeply religious people believe that if they kill themselves, they don't get to heaven or their version of heaven. So it seems very unlikely. Since he was an old man, it is a possibility that he was suffering from memory loss, but he still would not have been able to get far away, so searches would have found him confused in the forest. The last idea that goes along with this is that Maurice just wandered off to die in a beautiful place. All of these theories have some substance, but all end up with the fact that he would not have been able to walk very far. This theory is much darker than the rest, but it is the theory that David is making up this whole account of what happened to cover up him murdering Maurice. David would have the ability to kill Maurice and the time to hide his body and come up with the story. He had tons of time where Maurice was just with him and Maurice was old and sick, so he would not have put up a fight. However, David had no motive, and people have looked into this, and Maurice's wife explains David as a very close friend. He just, there was no motive. 
Killing Maurice would not result in monetary gain for him, and it wouldn't affect his life for better or worse. So I don't really know where to go with this theory, but I am going to tell you it does seem like the most plausible out of all the theories. We have one more theory, but this murdered by David and never even arriving at the area makes the most logical sense. The last theory is me trying to slowly bring you all into the world of missing 411 theories, and this one is alien abduction. So alien abduction is a theory in many of these cases, and I kind of understand why. These are cases that are just so odd and have absolutely no logical solution to what happened. These people just seem to vanish, so aliens seem as plausible as the next idea. Basically, this theory is just that aliens came in in that 15-minute period that David was gone and abducted Maurice. Maybe they wanted to investigate his tools, so they took those as well, or Maurice could have had them all packed up and had been holding them at the time. Anyways, your guess is kind of as good as mine with this theory. It's a little further out there, but it makes as much sense as the next theory. Thank you for joining me to learn about the Jared Adedaro case and the Dr. Maurice Dometz case. Next week, I'm also going to be doing an episode with two cases, kind of. It is going to be the Lauren Spearer case and another case that many believe is highly connected to hers. If you want to get early access to that episode on the Lauren Spearer case, go join our Patreon at the link below. That case is up right now. Also, check out our Patreon to be able to vote on a case I do every month and get a monthly bonus episode. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at GreatUnsolved and on Instagram at GreatUnsolvedPod and check out our Facebook page. All of those links are going to be down below. Lastly, my book has officially launched now. It came out last Friday, so be sure to check out the description for links to buy that and go check it out. See if that's something you like. It focuses on the theory of the SFK killers. Stay safe and have a wonderful day. Great Unsolved is a partner of the Oracle Network. So, how does it feel when you play Roll Up to Win with Tim Hortons? Buy a hot or cold beverage using the Tim's app and find out. Roll in the app for a chance to win prizes ranging from free coffee and donuts to a Universal Orlando Resort vacation or a sweet car. Oh, don't forget the TV. And this year, every roll is a shot at a $1,000 daily giveaway drawing for two $500 prizes. Roll Up to Win and get treated by Tim's. No purchase necessary. Account registration required. 50 U.S. and D.C. 18 plus entered by 4223. See rules at rolluptowin.com for free entry of full details. Void in Florida and where prohibited. 
With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC.